0: And turn the pages slowly until you get to Obadiah. There's a Bible probably somewhere in front of you in the chairs. If you don't have one, grab one. If you can't find it, ask someone to help you, but read your Bible tonight. Follow along in the Word. Uh, it's the value of Bible study. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight, and we're so thankful that we live in a country where we are free as of yet to proclaim and to teach the truth where we can gather together, aside from any distraction, any kind of anarchy or warfare that is going on outside, and to just peacefully settle down and read your word. What a great gift that is. And yet to whom much has been given, much is required. I pray, Lord, that tonight we might give ourselves fully to the understanding of your truth, that it might transform our lives, that we might understand your plan And that we might make these truths applicable to our lives. That your Holy Spirit would enable us to do that. That we would glean the lessons that are between these verses. Lord, I pray that you'd make us a people mighty in your word. More than just filled with knowledge, Lord, since knowledge can puff up but love builds up. We pray that we might take these lessons and with a heart of love follow and obey you. We invite your Holy Spirit to become our teacher. And I thank you, Lord, for a group of people who are hungry and who are thirsty to know you. Reward them with your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my son's favorite characters is Indiana Jones. You know, every kid grows up having a character, and usually it's a character that you see in the movies are in film, and he just likes Indiana. The whole idea, you know, of the bullwhip and the hat, and he got a hat for Christmas, and last Christmas he got a bullwhip, and he carries it around. And he, when he watches the show, he becomes the character. He wants to dress up and then assume the character. And if you've seen the series, uh, the last movie of Indiana Jones was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And uh, you remember that they were trying to find this place, this city. Uh, where this item was kept, this cup was kept. And they went through the ravines and they went through this one part of the world and they come to this huge rock palace. They wind through the canyons. And remember they come to that huge rock palace? That is what we are going to be reading about tonight in Obadiah. The rock city of Petra is where that was filmed. It's over in the country of present day Jordan in ancient Edom. It was carved out of the clefts of the rocks, and it is mentioned in this book as the city whose habitation is carved out of the cleft of the rocks. It has endured all of this time, and now they're making movies over there. It's amazing. But it is completely desolate. The only way to get in is a local Bedouin guide. He has to take you there by donkey or horseback. And I went there last year on a horse. I was crossed between a donkey and a horse. Anyway, it got me in there, but uh, I was also there last week, not at Petra, but I could see the area. I was down in Edom, southern Jordan, downwind of the Dead Sea uh, this last week. And so to be covering this uh, portion of uh, Scripture is, to me, it's it's still fresh in my mind because I've seen the landscape, I've been through the countryside. And so uh, that's what we're going to be covering tonight. It begins by simply saying, the vision of Obadiah. Nothing is mentioned of where Obadiah is from, his genealogy, his background, his education, his prowess, his importance, just the vision of Obadiah. Obadiah is one of four prophets that we have absolutely no information on other than the name that appears in the book. Habakkuk is one of them. Obadiah is another one. Haggai is another one, and Malachi is one. Obadiah is like a ghost writer. He's there performing a ministry for the Lord, unto the Lord, but he doesn't write about himself. He is a true servant of God. He kind of gets his, his, own, his own self out of the picture, and he's bringing forth this vision. He's a servant of the Lord. Which means he lives up to his name because the name Obadiah in Hebrew means a servant of the Lord. Or a worshiper of the Lord, either translation. And he lived up to the name that his parents gave him. You know, the Hebrews, when they named their kids, they just didn't go through a little book that had the ten most famous names. They just didn't think, Now, what's a cool sounding name? What's a different name that other people don't have? And, you know, sometimes we pick strange names because we want to be different. And then our kids grow up and they say, why'd you name me that weird name? Well, I don't know, it just sounded cool. The Hebrews were never caught like that. Mom, why'd you name me servant of God? Because that's what I want you to be, son. And the Hebrews always named their kids based on a hope and an aspiration they had before God. And so when my son was born, we really thought it was going to be a girl. And he took us by surprise. He came out and we didn't have a name picked out. And so Lenya's sister called her from Michigan and said, Well, what's this child's name? And she was so tired after labor and delivery. She turned to me and go, I don't know, what's his name? I said his name is Nathan. Nathan means a gift. It comes from the Hebrew word Nathaniel, a gift from God. And that's our hope is that not only is he a gift of God to us, but that God would send him as a gift into a dark world to show the light of Jesus Christ, and that like Abraham, he would become a blessing to the nations. It's our hope for him. So when he says, Mom, Why'd you call me Nathan? We'll tell him why. There's a reason behind it. Well, oh, just a cool name. No, it's an old biblical name. A prophet of God. A gift. So Obadiah, a servant or a worshiper of the Lord, in the next 21 verses, shares uh, his genealogy. And You and I who aspire to be God's servants should take a lesson from this. We are important to God. God loves us singularly, individually, not just corporately. God just doesn't see us tonight as a mass of people in a building. He knows you individually. The very hairs of your head are numbered. You're important to God. But we must not take our importance and elevate it beyond the message of God. Our ministry is to proclaim God and bring glory to Him and not to draw attention to ourselves. A true servant doesn't seek to draw attention to himself, but to draw attention to Jesus Christ. And a servant of God in the church should do the same. More and more in the ministry, I see the importance of weaning people off of the dependency upon man and onto a dependency on the Lord. And it's so hard for people to just depend on God. It's so easier to trust in man, we think, until it backfires. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, or makes flesh his arm. And we think, oh, but you teach the word, or you're a counselor. I'd rather trust you. You have the right words to say. That's why I don't like Christian therapy. I don't believe in therapeutic relationships. The longer you drag on counseling and the counselee depends upon the counsellor, It's an unhealthy relationship. Oh, i got a problem. You're the only one. I've got to call so-and-so. Now, that's okay at first. But more and more, there should be a weaning off of the dependency upon man and onto God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's the only place of satisfaction. Obadiah wants to step out of the way. You and I, when we minister, should step out of the way and, and... let the people see Jesus, the impact of just God and his word. And Obadiah does that. He doesn't share his genealogy, his education, his background. And you know, whenever I guests speak and they say, well, how do you want to be introduced? Just skip. Skip, that didn't sound so, I mean, it didn't sound important. How about reverend? No, nah. <laughs> there's nothing reverend about me. I hate the name reverend. There's only one time it's applied. Holy and reverend is his name. I don't want to fit into that category. And I don't like, oh, you know, this is Skip, and this has happened in his church, and da-da-da. No, just, just introduce, give, me my, give my name, and that's it. I don't like long titles. I don't like long introductions. Just keep it simple. A servant of God. That's how Paul introduces his letter. Paul the Apostle, a bond servant of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he gave his message, and Obadiah was the same, and you and I should use that as a model. It says, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Let me just give you a brief outline of this book, the history of the land, and so forth. Edom is the land across the Jordan River from Israel, next to the Dead Sea, and a little bit down south. It is in the country of present-day Jordan. If you looked at it on an ancient map, you'd have Edom down south and Moab to the north, all in the present-day Hashemite kingdom of King Hussein of Jordan. The book of Obadiah is a foretelling of the doom that will come upon this ancient enemy of Judah. Because of the violence that occurred, by the Edomites against the children of Israel, something that occurred no less than six times in history. It is difficult for historians to place the exact setting and the timing of this book. It's really not that important, but it's sometime before or after the captivity by Nebuchadnezzar of the children of Israel into Babylon, sometime around 586 B.C. We don't know, and really it's not that important. but. It is important to know the background. Now, I want you to just to turn to the map in the back of your Bible. Usually you don't get a Bible study in the maps, just the books, but we're going to study a map. Uh, take a map uh, that would show you basically the land of Israel, Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea, and some of the ancient names, Gilead, Ammon, Moab. You'll have a number of maps that will do that. I'm going to give you a little geography and topography lesson. Three basic important civilizations arose out of the ancient Near East. You could put a circle around Egypt, the power to the southwest of Israel. And then you could draw a circle around the land of Canaan or the land of Israel or the land of Palestine. I don't like the name Palestine. I reject it as a name because it means land of the Philistines. And there are no Philistines that are left. It's not their land anymore. And then you could draw a circle way off to the northeast where you have the kingdom of Babylon, Syria, and Assyria. In between Egypt, as you can see in these circles, in between Egypt and Assyria is this land bridge, the Fertile Crescent, the land of Israel. Whenever Israel came into the land from Egypt, she'd been, she has been dogged and hassled ever since, sometimes unjustifiably, sometimes justifiably. But whenever you wanted to cross from Egypt to Mesopotamia, along the trade routes, you'd have to go through Israel. Because of that, some of the major battles were fought in the only bridge that crossed from Egypt into Mesopotamia, you see, right to the middle of Israel there's a bony ridge of mountains and there's no break at all in them except to the north. There's a valley called the Valley of Armageddon in the plain of Jezreel or Ezrelon. And the armies would march there and meet there and often fight there. That was the land bridge in the fertile crescent. Well, if you take now and look at the very coast of Israel, you have what's called the coastal plain. In the Old Testament, not many cities arose here because of the lack of harbors in the area. And then as you go inland a little bit, the topography begins to rise higher and higher. And you have on that area, it's known as the lowlands or the Shephala. much like the area in Southern California where it begins to rise. It's very fertile there. And because it's fertile, more cities began to develop. As you go inland a little bit, you notice on your map you probably have mountains drawn or it looks like little hills, little darkened areas. That's the central mountain range. So you have the coastal plain, the lowlands, and the central mountain range that rises pretty high. Lots of cities were in this area in the Old Testament times because mountains are natural fortifications. You're going to build a city, you're going to find water and natural fortifications. Mountains, Samaria, Jerusalem, provided that naturally. As soon as you hit that bony ridge of mountains, topographically speaking, you begin to go down again. You start at sea level, you go up to the mountains, you go down to the Jordan Rift Valley, which is lower in elevation than even the Mediterranean Sea. In fact, the Sea of Galilee is some 692 feet below sea level. The entire Jordan Rift Valley is below sea level in Israel. It's part of what's called the Syrio-African Rift, all the way from Syria through Israel, all the way into Africa. Then at the Jordan River, which is the modern division between Israel and Jordan, not in the old times, just in modern times, it begins to rise again, quite abruptly. It arises up to another bony ridge of the plateau. And you can sit in Jordan today or stand and look all the way down in the Dead Sea and look all the way into the land of Israel and on a clear day even see the lights of Jerusalem. Just as you can stand on the other side of the Dead Sea in Israel and see the land of Jordan today, Mount Nebo where Moses took the children of Israel through. The geography plays an important part because On either side of the Jordan, you could see into the land, each other's land, and battles took place on either side of the Jordan throughout history. The land of the Edomites were those who were posed east of the Jordan River, east of the Dead Sea. It was their kingdom. They hated the children of Israel ever since she tried to enter the land after she was delivered out of Egyptian bondage. Moses tried to get Clarence to go through, and the king of Edom said, No way. And they hassled them. And they became arch enemies of Israel ever since. Edom, let's go back further. The Edomites were descendants of Esau. Esau was the twin brother of Jacob. Now let's go back further. Abraham had a son, a couple sons. His son Isaac, the son of promise... When he was 40 years old, got married. I mean, he was a holdout. He didn't get married until he was 40. And when he finally got married, of course, he's 40 years old. Now he wants to have kids. He doesn't want to wait five years to adjust. He just wants kids. But Rebecca, his wife, couldn't conceive. She was barren. And so he did what any godly husband should do when his wife wants to have children. He prayed for her. He entreated the Lord, God, give my wife children. God answered his prayer. In fact, he answered his prayer with a double blessing. She had twins, and while she conceived, and there was a jostling and a wrestling inside of her womb. And she said, Honey, it's painful. If all is well before the Lord, how come there's this jostling in my womb? And so she went before the Lord and God said, Two nations are in your womb. That's enough to cause discomfort. Two nations. Of course, he was talking about the eventual prod- progeny of the, of the two twins. Two nations are in your womb, and two people shall be separated from your body. And he said that they would be distinct from one another. One will be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Well, nine months passed, and she had her children. Now, these were not identical twins at all. They were very opposite. Not only in looks, but in temperament. The first one that came out, he came out already in hairy. And so his dad said, Let's call him Harry. That's what he looks like. He's Harry. That's what the word Esau means, Harry. Harry came out and was delivered, a normal baby. And as Harry was coming out, the hand of his brother was grabbing his heel. And his dad said, look at that, he's grabbing his heel. Let's call him Heel Catcher. Yaakov, Jacob. Jacob means one who grabs the heel, literally. It's been translated also as supplanter or deceiver. Both of them lived up to their names. Jacob, though he was the progenitor of the nation of Israel, was a schemer, man. Now Esau was a hairy guy. He grew up and he was just kind of a, he was a man's man. He loved to camp. He loved uh, outdoors. He was a hunter. He was your typical macho man. Jacob was tied to his mother's apron strings. He loved to cook. It says in the New King James, he was a mild man. In literal Hebrew, he was a complete man. I find that interesting, especially in lieu of the fact that some guys think that, you know, to be a real man, you ought to be macho. You don't cry. You don't show emotion. The Bible says he was a complete man. He was mild, but he was complete. Now Esau is a man of the flesh. He did not care about spiritual things. Jacob, though he was a mama's boy, cared about spiritual things. One day, Esau came in from a hunting trip, and he was so hungry. And he knew that his brother cooked a mean red lentil stew. He came in, and he was cooking that stew, and he thought, oh, I love it. I'm starving to death. Man, hey, give me some of that red stew. And it says in the Bible, Therefore his name was called Edom, which means red. Esau becomes Edom. Jacob was a conniver, but he was interested in spiritual things. He was not firstborn. He was the second kid out. But he wanted the blessing of the firstborn. Esau could care less about his birthright. Jacob wanted it. He said, Tell you what, Esau, I'll work a deal with you. I'll give you some of my stew if you'll sell me your birthright. Esau said, What do I care about a birthright? I'm starving. You can have it. Just give me some stew. And he sold his spiritual covenant relationship, because he didn't care about spiritual things, for a bowl of stew. He cared more about the flesh than about the spirit. Ever since they were born, Jacob and Esau were at enmity with each other. They were jostling in the womb. The older will serve the younger. One will be stronger than the other. That's Esau, certainly. But the older will serve the younger. The Edomites were descendants of Esau. The Israelites were descendants of Jacob. The Israelites settled in Canaan. The Edomites settled in Edom. And, and uh, actually the, uh, the Arab nations from Ishmael and from Esau settled in many areas. God told uh, a Hagar the mother of Ishmael. Twelve nations will come also from this man, just like twelve nations out of Isaac and Israel. And that there will be twelve tribes, there will also be twelve nations. And I'll make you and I'll bless you and make you a great nation. But this land I have given to Jacob and his twelve sons forever as a covenant. There's always been this enmity between the children of Jacob and the children of Esau. And this uh, book brings it out. Uh, That's just a background on it. They struggled from the start. And uh, by the way, that is a picture of you and me. You and I have two natures within us. If you are a believer, you have an Esau and you have an Isaac. You have one who cares for spiritual things and one who cares just for fleshly appetites. It says that the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And if you're a believer, you've experienced that, haven't you? You know what that struggle is like. Just like two nations were struggling, she said, hey, if all's well, how come this jostling? And you say, if I'm a Christian, how come this struggle I have? Because you've got a man of the flesh and a man of the spirit. One is concerned about spiritual things, he's complete. And one is concerned only about um, fleshly things. Interesting also, the name Edom can be translated sunburned. Now a sunburned person is a person who can absorb the rays of the electromagnetic spectrum except the light rays which cause the sunburn from the sun. He can't absorb them anymore. They burned him. And so it is with a fleshly person. He cannot absorb the rays of God's light, the the light of heaven. And the light of God's glory will either save you or burn you in judgment. One of the two. Esau was sunburned. He was red. He couldn't absorb any spiritual light. Well, I don't want to draw the analogy too far, but uh, we go on, and uh, it says we have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, "Arise and let us rise against her for battle." Uh, one, a uh, couple final words. Though Edom would not let Israel pass through her to get into Canaan and thus became arch enemies of the Israelites, God commanded the children of Israel, you shall never abhor an Edomite because he's your brother. Your descendants go all the way back. Esau and Jacob were brothers. They're both Semites. They come from the same stock. You shall not abhor him. Even if he's your enemy, you shall not hate him. And he says, you shall not abhor an Egyptian because you were strangers in his land. Even if they hate you, even if the Edomites are against you, don't hate them. Of course, they didn't always follow through. But God told them. Now, another interesting thing before we move on. You're going to get to it in Malachi, the last book of the Bible. But there's a very puzzling verse. And I might as well just bring it out because you'll be puzzled by it anyway. In the last chapter, or last book of the Bible, Malachi chapter 1, God says, Esau have I hated, Jacob have I loved. That bothers a lot of people. It bothers me. Somebody came up to Dr. Griffith Thomas, the great biblical expositor, and said, Dr. Thomas, I have a problem with Malachi chapter 1 where God says, I love Isaac or I love Jacob, but I hate Esau. I can't understand why God would hate Esau. Dr. Griffith Thomas said, you know, I, I have a problem with that verse, too. But my problem is different than yours. I can understand why God can hate Esau, but I can't understand why God would love Jacob. He was a crook. He was corrupt. He hasn't been perfect yet God chose him. But you got to understand, when God, in Hebrew, says, one I've loved, one I've hated, He's not speaking emotionally. He's speaking by sovereign election, by choice. It's not like this winsome feeling of love and there's anger. It's not an emotional thing, it's a thing of choice. A covenant has been made with Abraham, and God intends to follow through on it. That's what God was speaking about. Um, I, I guess I should mention too, I, I was in, um, I was driving through the deserts of Jordan this last week, and I was with a, a dear brother, Sammy Dagger. He's Lebanese. He's a Christian Arab. He loves his people. He loves the work of God, and I love him. And we were talking about some of these issues, and he said, you got to remember something, Skip. God told the mother of Ishmael, gave her a prediction. He said, Ishmael will be a wild man, and his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand will be against his. And he said, I'm an Arab, and we're wild, and I speak as one. I know my people and we've been given that temperament, and we have problems even getting along with ourselves. And yet he said, I love my people. And I know that the gospel will go out to every man, and it's true. When we speak of the future judgment against Edom, bear something in mind. Today there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. God saves every man on the same basis. Whether Jew or Gentile, you all come by faith in Jesus Christ. Now God does have a national covenant he will keep with the nation of Israel but that should not put any prejudice in our hearts. We should love all men and seek to get the gospel out to all men." All right. The vision of Obadiah. This is something not that he invented. This was a supernal vision, something given from God. It was not a natural vision. It was a supernal vision. God gave it to him. And Peter says that in the Old Testament, in the olden times, These holy men didn't speak just as they felt like they wanted to, but they were moved by the Holy Spirit. He saw something in his awakened conscience. It wasn't a dream. He wasn't asleep. He saw this in an awake state of vision concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. A messenger has been sent among the nations saying, Arise, or let us rise up against her for battle. And he's going to see the future doom of this nation this enemy of Israel. As the Babylonians and the Assyrians, or excuse me, first the Assyrians, then the Babylonians come in and destroy this nation. Because of the sin of pride. Notice the next verse. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. The Edomites were a great people. A wise people. Great power, great courage, and great strength. That was their reputation in ancient times. But the pride of heart, they were lifted up, and God lowered them. It's like the first king of Israel was King Saul. He was tall. He was head and shoulders above everyone. And when he was first called, he was humble. As they went in among the tribe of Benjamin and the family of Kish, and they were going to anoint Saul, they said, "Where's Saul. We can't find him. They said, I don't know. And they finally found him hidden behind the equipment. But later on he elevated himself. He thought he could do anything he wanted. He came back from the slaughter of the Amalekites. And Samuel said, why haven't you obeyed God? He said, I've obeyed God. He said, didn't God tell you to wipe everything out? Oh, but I brought some of the sheep back for a sacrifice. Samuel basically said, you're a liar. Saul, at one time you were small in your own eyes. And that's really the key to success, spiritually, is you become small in your own eyes. It's when you become large in your own eyes that God's finished with you until He can break you and make you small. The reason many people are not used by God is because they have this elevated opinion of themselves. I'm really important, man. I'm something. I'm a cut above the rest because of my genes or because of my background or my education or what. The secret is you become small in your eyes. You hide behind the equipment. <laughs> but when you become elevated, that's the problem. And it says the pride of your heart has deceived you. God, that's so important. So important to recognize that. You know, if, if I were to tell you of a person in the church who was on drugs, claimed to be a Christian, and yet for the five years of his Christian walk indulged freely in drugs, you'd say, oh, that's horrible. He ought to be disciplined by the church and put out. I'd agree with you. If I told you about someone who claimed to be a Christian and for three years cheated on his wife every week, though he was an officer in some local church, you'd say, oh, that's detestable. He ought to be put out of the church if there's no repentance, and I'd agree with you. But if I were to tell you about a person who's filled with pride, you would might say, well, so what? But you see, pride is greater. It's the sin of sins. It's the sin that causes all of those other things. It's the sin by which Satan fell. I will rise above the stars of God, Satan said. I will be like the Most High. It was pride that caused the overthrow of Nebuchadnezzar. caused him to go nuts. He was walking through his palace there in Baghdad one day. and He looked over ancient Babylon and said, Look at this city which I have built. He was so proud of himself. He was attributing the work of what happened. And actually it was the work of God. God said He raises up kingdoms and lowers them. He said, I've done this. And as that thought struck in his head, it was heard in heaven. (laughs) Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. Nebuchadnezzar went nuts. He grew hair on his body, claws on his fingernails, and God put him out to pasture until he was humbled, and he turned back to God, and he realized the Most High reigns in the kingdom of men, and He sets on the throne whomsoever He willeth. It was that pride that caused him to fall. He wanted to elevate himself, but he was lowered. Paul said, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. What mind was that? Did you come and say, now I want you to know something, earth, I'm the Son of God. You bow down and you start doing obeisance. He would be justified in doing it, but he didn't. He became a servant. Though being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God or literally a thing to be held onto at all costs, he emptied himself and became of no reputation. He poured himself out to the last drop. He humbled himself. Therefore God highly exalted him. Compare that to Satan. He said, I will go higher, higher, higher. I will be like the most high. God said, you go lower, lower, lower. And see, that's a scriptural principle. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbled himself will be exalted. Obadiah humbles himself as a servant, as a prophet. The Edomites elevated themselves in their importance. The pride of their heart deceived you. Pride comes before a fall, the scripture says, and a haughty spirit before destruction. Let me define pride. There's a lot of definitions. But pride is the attitude that a person develops whereby they say, I have the ability to live without God in this area of my life, whether altogether or a certain area. It's self-confidence that causes a person to look around at other people as if they're cut lower. You know what? It says in the book of Proverbs, six things God hates, yea, seven are an abomination to Him. Number one on the list, a proud look. You know the attitude, you come into church and there's somebody who obviously is a sinner. I mean, look at them. That's the beautiful thing about this place, it's hard to tell. Man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. You think, oh, I'm a little holier and I read my Bible and I pray and I fast like the Pharisee in the book of Luke. You know what? God abhors that attitude of spiritual pride, of looking down, of judgmentalism. He hates that. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? 4,000 feet above sea level on that plateau that comes up from the Jordan Rift Valley, it extends down south and it rises higher and higher to another rocky ridge between 4,000 feet to 5,700 feet above sea level is the ancient city of Selah, the modern area of Petra, the ancient capital of the Edomite kingdom. And there in the clefts of the rocks, and you got to through windy canyons, do you get to this place? It was thought to be invincible. They did not build using stones. In other words, they didn't cut stones, blocks, and build uh, palaces out of a pure uh, red sandstone rock, very hard sandstone. They would cut into the sandstone a facade. It's amazing to see, but into one solid piece of rock. Imagine going to Yosemite seeing those huge rocks and just starting to carve pillars and lintels, and decorations and motifs and colonnades out of solid rock you dig into them. They built an entire city like this. As I looked at Petra, I just thought, wow, I can see why they thought they were invincible. It's intact today, incredibly. And you can follow the footsteps to the high place of Petra and overlook that area. You can't get in except by these narrow canyons. On top of the high place was where they had human sacrifices. They would cut the necks of humans and it would drain and you can still see the drainage bowls today carved into the rock. And in their pride they thought, we're invincible. Look at these natural fortifications. Nobody can get to us. We can hassle the children of Israel all our lives and nobody can touch us. We're strong. We're invincible. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground though you exalt yourself as high as the eagle and set your nest among the stars from there I will bring you down says the Lord. You know what? There is no one outside of the disciplining hand of God. God can reach you. You can't hide from him. Oh, I'll go above. God said you go above the stars. That's what Satan said. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. God says you're history, bud. Boom. be brought down to hell. Nobody's outside of God's disciplining hand. No one. God has his ways of reaching you. David said, if I go to the uttermost parts of the earth, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. I can't escape your presence. And Christian, you can thank God that the Holy Spirit is the hound of heaven and that whom the Lord loves he chasteneth. And when we err, God is able to find us in the clefts of the rocks wherever we might hang out. And we think, I'm safe here. God will find you and out of His love discipline you. Thank God for that. It's a mark of sonship, the writer of Hebrews tells us. It's not a mark that God's against you. It's a proof of His love. Of course, uh, these ancient enemies, it was a proof of God's judgment at this time. From there I will bring you down, says the Lord. Verse 5, if thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off. Would they not have stolen till they have had enough? Thieves when they break into homes are usually selective. It is rare that a person will have his home completely looted. It is rare to come home after a thief has broken in and find every stitch of whatever you own gone. Usually they want certain things. They want electrical things, they want firearms, and so forth. They're selective. I've been broken into or they've stolen just select items. They probably knew who I was and knew where I lived and knew when I'd be gone. And Obadiah's idea here is robbers are selective, but he's saying, I'm amazed that you will be looted completely. They won't leave a thing. Your judgment will be complete, unlike that of a thief or a robber. That's his analogy. Next analogy. If grape gatherers had come to you, Would they not have left some gleanings? Now back in the book of Leviticus, God gave a standard practice for farming. He said, When it's harvest time and you go out to your crops, and you go get your grapes, go over it once. Don't go over it twice. Leave the corners of your field with crops. Don't glean it. Leave some produce there so that the poor of the land can get the leftovers. Because they can't provide for themselves at that point. They could go into your land and get the leftovers. So leave some for them. But God is saying it will be a complete harvest. A complete, you know, uh, harvest is indicative of judgment often in the Old Testament. Oh, how Esau shall be searched out. How his hidden treasure shall be sought after. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. In other words, your own allies will turn on you. Uh, the people of Syria and Assyria. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Now, the area of Petra, the ancient city, was an area of commerce because of the trade routes running through the Fertile Crescent. They would stop by the King's Highway. The King's Highway went through Petra. And caravans that would go from Egypt to Mesopotamia to other parts of the world would stop there. And Petra was like the first national bank of the ancient world. They thought because it's so impenetrable, because it's encapsulated by these caverns and canyons, no one can get to it, people from all over the world, nations would bring their booties there and their loot. Kings would have vast treasures there because they thought nobody can rip these guys off. God says, you'll be looted man, they'll take it all. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you no one is aware of. it." In other words, you're sitting up there high and pretty and you think, hey man, nothing's going to happen. It's coming. And you know what? The judgment of the world will be much the same, the final judgment. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days of Noah, people were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the time that Noah went into the ark. God gave a judgment. He said, Noah, I'm going to cause the world to be flooded with water. Of course, nobody believed him. He's out there in the middle of the Mesopotamian desert building a boat in an area where you don't need boats. I heard today over lunch that... uh, one of, the, um, one of the world's, one of America's famous um, uh, sailors who does all these races uh, around the world in, in boats lives in New Mexico. And my first impression you're kidding. Hey, there's no water to do that. I mean, you'd expect them to live in Florida or Maui or something. And here's Noah out there in the middle of the desert building this huge old boat. And they go, hey Noah, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm building a boat. Yeah, I can see that, but uh, you got anything in mind? Yeah, God's going to flood the world. Oh, uh, Sarah, have you noticed? Or, uh, I wouldn't. Uh, have you ever noticed anything? What, what's with this guy? Not Noah, Sarah. Um, Noah's wife, Mrs. Noah. <laughs> Is this guy having an old age crisis or what? They didn't believe him. They were eating, drinking, marrying, giving him. They paid no attention to those warnings at all. So shall it be, Jesus said, at the coming of the Son of Man. People are ignoring the warnings that we as Christians are seeing in the world around us today. We're seeing the timeline thin out. Oh, yeah, it'll never happen to my... You know, my grandmother said that. They said that for years. It won't happen. Life will go on its merry way. And the Edomites were seeing that about their own judgment, which was coming upon them soon. No one's aware of it. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau shall be cut off or may be cut off by slaughter. Now notice there's a few words that are used synonymously. Edom, Esau, Teman. All of those mean the same thing. Esau was the progenitor of the race. Edom means red because of the bowl of stew he wanted, and they became known as Edomites. And Teman was the grandson of Esau. And uh, the Temanites, which were in the southern part of this kingdom, were renowned for their courage. So these terms are used uh, interchangeably as synonyms. Because the caravan routes from all over the world ended up in Petra, There was an incredible exchange of information. Remember, they didn't have computers. They couldn't uh, open up their computer, get into Prodigy or get USA Today or turn on CNN. You can go anywhere in the world, I found, and turn on CNN. They didn't have that. They depended on caravans, people traveling, and they'd stop them at the gates of the city and say, what's going on in Assyria? What's the news in Egypt? And because it was a crossroads, the men of Edom were renowned for their wisdom, for their counseling. Remember one of Job's friends was named Eliphaz. He was a Temanite. And he came spewing this great psychological knowledge of why Job was suffering the way he was. And it's probably because you're not right with God, and if you really love God, you'd be in perfect hell. Of course, he was really wrong, wasn't he? The wisdom of Teman, the wisdom of Esau, says shall be cut off by the slaughter in the mountains of Esau. Remember God said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. People who reject God are fools. Professing themselves to be wise, they become as fools. Don't talk to me that way. I have a Ph.D. I'm a great sociologist. I graduated from this. So what? Compared to God, that's nothing. God said, I will... You now, especially, you know, knowledge without God is the absence of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord, to hate pride, arrogancy, the evil way. They had pushed God out. They elevated themselves, thought they're invincible. God said, you'd be cut off. Now, verses 10 through 14 is actually a list of the reasons God will judge them. First of all is for Violence for violence against your brother Jacob, and because of violence a couple things will happen. Shame shall cover you, which occurred, the Babylonians who took Judah also took Edom later on. Shame covered them. They would be taken into captivity. Their heads would be hanging low as they were taking captive this uh, once great city, this once great nation. And you shall be cut off forever, second part of the prophecy. And that's true. Ever heard of an Edomite lately? Ever heard on the news about what's going on with the Edomites? There are no Edomites. They're extinct as a race. There are still descendants of Esau through intermarriage, but the race of Edom itself, the nation of Edom, is completely cut off. The Babylonians took them captive by sending spies into Petra. Later on, the, Rome, uh, the Maccabeans wiped them out, and later on they were completely destroyed by the Romans. There was only one last Edomite. In fact, we read about him in the New Testament. His name was Herod the Great. He was an Idumean, which is the New Testament term for an Edomite. And that was it. And he was, he was not a good example of them. He said, you shall be cut off forever. In that day that you stood on the other side of the Jordan, in that day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates. They were there when the Babylonians would come into Jerusalem to take the city, and they would cheer them on. All right! They're destroying Jerusalem. Woo, all right! Sort of like uh, what occurred on the West Bank when the Scuds hit Tel Aviv. There was rejoicing in the streets on the West Bank. I want you to turn over to Psalm 137 for just a moment. And you'll get a taste of this by the psalmist. The psalmist declares in Psalm 137, By the rivers of Babylon, this is during the captivity, There we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there those who carried us away captive required of us a song, and those who plundered of us required uh, required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it or make it bare. Raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed. Happy shall he be who repays you as you have served us. Happy shall he be who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. So they were there egging them on. All right, destroy Jerusalem. On the other side. The list goes on. And cast lots for Jerusalem. Even you were as one of them. Now, let's apply this personally. There is, within the attitude of pride, a rejoicing when certain things happen to people we don't like. You say, now I'm going to warn you. And then if it happens, I told you so. And sometimes rejoicing over the evil that has befallen those people. Instead of loving our enemies. You know what? It's always popular to kick the underdog. You know why? There's little risk to it. You find out that when Somebody becomes unpopular in a group and criticism is leveled against that underdog. That it's popular for everybody else to kick in because there, there's no risk to the people who are leveling it. It's easy to kick the underdog, but they forget that God always takes the side of the oppressed. And they were saying, nah, 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 against Jerusalem, God says, I'm going to take their side. Now, I'm going to, first of all, send them into captivity because they're idolaters. The children of Jacob, the Israelites, have sinned, therefore I will punish them. But because you have said this in your heart, I'll take their side, the side of the underdog. Even as God said to the children of Israel, if you oppress the poor in your land and you exploit them and you rip them off, and you take their pledge and their cloak, I'm going to be against you. I'll take their side. That's God's method. And so if you don't step in to help, God says in verse 11, even you were as one of them. You're just as guilty as the Babylonians because you didn't step in to help. There's a story that comes from New York City, a lady by the name of Kitty Genovese. She was walking home uh, after working late one evening. She was stabbed 37 times right next to her apartment. The tragic thing is some 40 people watched the entire event and didn't lift a finger. When that hit the national press, the nation was appalled that people could stand by and do nothing, and they became as one of them because they didn't do anything. Thus is the indictment against Edom. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress." Kicking a person when they're down. "...you should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance." Not only did they uh, laugh. Did they encourage the Babylonians? They came in after they had taken the people out and looted the cities and took it back over to Petra. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. Now this is what happened. In 586 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar, after the third time, besieged Jerusalem and were taking people captive, many of the people in Judah decided, hey, I'm going to split. You would too, if you could escape. They took their families, and they, many of them went down the rift valley toward the Dead Sea, crossed over the Jordan, and were going up into the plains of Moab and down to Edom. At the crossroads of the national caravan routes, the King's Highway, the Edomites would stand, and when they saw the Israelites coming, they would divert them into the hands of the enemy. And when those who had escaped went into the hiding places, the caves of the area of Edom, the Edomites would tell the Babylonians, hey, I know where they're hiding. Go get them. They delivered their brother Jacob into their hands. And then verse 15 there is sort of a switch. There's this broad painting now. Going from judgment against Edom, God speaks about the judgment of the nations. For he says, for the day of the Lord upon all nations is near. We don't have enough time to develop that, but you know from subsequent studies that the day of the Lord is a technical term that covers a lot of time beginning with the tribulation period all the way to the second coming of Jesus Christ. A time of judgment upon all the nations. Matthew chapter 25 speaks of a judgment for the nations of how they treated pardon me, the remnant, the godly remnant of 144,000 saved Jews out of the tribulation period. And in Matthew 25 it says, When the Son of Man returns in His glory with His holy angels with Him, all the nations will be gathered to Him, and He will separate them as a shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. This is not the great white throne judgment. Books are not opened at this judgment. This is a judgment that takes place upon the earth, not in heaven. It's an entirely different judgment. And He judges the nations. And here is this uh, alluding to it. For as you have done, it should or it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow. In other words, poetic justice. You got them, it's coming to you. The Romans had the law of lex talionis, the law of retribution, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. God is taking their side, the side of the oppressed, and saying the judgment is now inevitable. Reprisal will return upon your own head. You know, we've got to think about that, by the way, that nations are responsible. Individuals are responsible, but nations are responsible. Nations are not responsible for receiving Christ. Individuals are. But there will be a judgment of the nations. First of all, there's no such thing as a Christian nation. So we're a Christian nation, don't you believe it? In the beginning we were starting out that way. This is not a Christian nation. Nor is Israel the Holy Land. Now one day it will be when Jesus reigns from there, but believe me, I've been there. It's not holy. It's unholy. There's strife. One day there will be a nation when God is the Lord and He reigns from that place. But nations will be judged. Nations, even cities are held. In the Old Testament, there's this wild law that says if you're out in the field and you see a guy dead, and you don't know why he's dead, the elders and the judges will come out and measure the distance of his dead body to the cities round about him and take him to the elders of the nearest city. They'll begin an investigation as to his death. And then the elders and the priests will take a heifer, take it out to a nearby river, break its neck, and atonement will be made for the city that is closest to the dead body, and they will declare, "We don't know who done this thing, or who has done this thing. We're not guilty, and uh, atonement would be made for the country, for the city, for the land, Because the nation, the city, was responsible for the crime that occurred in it and near it. Okay, verse 17, is. we'll finish up this book in seven minutes. Uh, You could slice this book right at this juncture. The first of all, the uh, first 16 verses speaks of the destruction of Edom. Uh, 17 to 21 speaks of the restoration of the nation of Israel. But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance. "...there shall be holiness, the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions, the house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau stubble." In other words, firewood. "...they shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken." Now, on Mount Zion, there will be deliverance. And you know what? Deliverance is offered today in the same place. Jesus was crucified on Mount Zion. The temple was built in Jerusalem and at the peak of that temple outside the Damascus gate is an outcropping of rock called Golgotha From the, on the same hillside, Mount Zion. Jesus was crucified. And if you want to find deliverance from sin today, you can look on all, you can go and have uh, uh, these moronic convergences that occur all over the world and, uh, oh excuse me, harmonic convergences that, actually they're demonic convergences. You want to, get realistic, taken, you know, in the Himalayas and down in, in Machu Picchu and uh, here in New Mexico, these center points for meditation on these high mountains. There's only one mountain of deliverance and that's Mount Zion. The work that Jesus did on the cross for us. And then it says also, there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. There is not holiness over there today. I've stood on Mount Zion. It's not holy. It's anything but Holy. And I've been over to that country some 15, 14, 15 times. And, oh, every time I say, Lord, come quickly. For one day, the law will go forth from Zion and righteousness from that land and all the Gentiles of the world will be gathered to it. Can't wait. Interesting, in verse 17, it says, The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. I like that. You know, there's a difference between owning possessions and possessing them. God promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that their land would extend from the Euphrates River to the river of Egypt, north and south, this incredible land of 300,000 miles. Even at its zenith under David and Solomon, Israel only occupied 30,000 square miles. At her highest, in other words, Israel has only possessed one-tenth of all that God gave to her. One day it'll all be theirs. They'll possess their possessions. The inhabitants of the south, that is Judah, shall possess the mountains of Esau and the inhabitants of the Philistine lowland shall possess the fields of Ephraim, the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead, that northern section east of the uh, Sea of Galilee. The captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, the captives of Jerusalem who are in um, Sepharad what he's giving ancient names of borders from north to south, in other words, the whole kitten caboodle, we might say, shall possess the cities of the south. Then saviors or deliverers shall come to Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now in the end we know, according to Zechariah, that the nations of the world will be gathered together against Judah and Israel once again. And God, as we have said, will also step in and intervene and fight as He did also in the day of battle. I want to bring to closure this book by giving one final lesson. God is standing up for His people, Israel and Judah. Though they lived up to their names, they were connivers. They were in many ways idolaters. They were sinners. God still made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the 12 tribes of a land that would be theirs. Though they failed God and they went into captivity for 70 years, God is sticking up for them. God is making good his promise that he made a long time ago. And you know, when you and I fail, when we sin, when we constantly fall short, God doesn't say, okay, I've had enough with you. No more promises. I won't keep them. Now, there are those who are so legalistic that they would say that. Oh, you've, you have know, like, no way. You know what? It's the goodness of God that leads a person to repentance. I found that sometimes when people are the most obnoxious, even be- believers, they aren't reading their Bible. They're not, and Sometimes they're blessed. think, "Oh, well, wait a minute, I don't know if I buy that. That you're blessed if you're, if you're good. Well, that's the law, not grace. William R. Newell, in his commentary on Romans, speaks about a man under grace, and he says, grace places the worst deservers in the highest of favors. And oftentimes God will bless that person and cause that person to go, oh, why are you doing this, God? Oh, I'm so wretched. Lord, I come to you. I know where this is coming from. And when we fail, when we blow it, God still has his promises to us to restore us, even as Judah has failed God here. And God is sticking up for her, saying he'll make his promises good. You should remember that next time you blow it. You feel far from God? Just come to him. Just go back to him. Just call on his name. I see so many people that say, Oh, I'm not doing so good. I'm so far from God. Well, don't. Soak in the mire. Put your foot upon the rock. One step back to God and you're in His presence again. One step of repentance. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And even in the midst of failure, there is the promise of restoration. God still loves you. And David said, the Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Wow, love it. That which God has begun, Paul said, he will continue to perform to the day of Jesus. Love it! Because there are times that I think, God, is the covenant broken? Have I gone too far? Have I failed you? Ever thought that? Aren't you glad that your salvation rests upon God? Now that's not to say that To be a Christian, all you do is acknowledge God exists and go your merry way. Faith without works is dead, but God is the one who gives you that motivation and ability. We're going to get to it in Romans in a few weeks. Paul said, what shall we say to these things? What can you say? You can say, right on, God. And that should cause our devotion to Him to soar.